Jonah has been sent out by God to speak a word to the Ninevites, the violent Assyrians. He runs from God. God saves him by miraculous means and delivers him in unbelievable fashion three days later to where he meant for him to be all along. And then Jonah preaches the original message that God gave to him to the Ninevites. They hear it. They're changed by it. They're scared by it. They have a fear of God and they turn from their wickedness. And beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, that they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished at a night, in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? My prayer is that as this book ends on a question, as always, this passage becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very words of God for the people of God. Now, again, we just finished. If you've been hanging out with us for the last several weeks, I want to congratulate you. This is always going to be a big deal for us. You just finished reading a book of the Bible. Okay, so if you've been hanging out just by virtue of spending time with us, you will finish on a regular basis books of the Bible. Now, that is a big deal. That is not a small thing. Even the people, most of the people, I would argue, who think that the Bible is awesome have never actually read it. 
Most of the people with the, the strongest convictions about how great the Bible is have never read it, okay? And so for you to have just even begun to consider the contents of this book, to begin to kind of stab at what, what can, also, um, I would say, often feel like a very steep learning curve when we open the Bible, you, you've just done something, it's, and it's amazing. And I pray that God begins to speak to you through it. But in this conclusion, this, this strange and ironic, and I would even say for the last chapter of Jonah, this comical ending of God interacting with this prophet, we see this relentless pursuit of God, even for people who are stubborn. And it ends on a confrontation, but a question. Remember, if you want to just tell somebody what to think, you, you just say it. But when you want to open their eyes to something, when you want to allow them to see it for themselves, you do so with questions. And that's exactly what we see here. And so for the last several weeks, we've seen that what I think you could argue is the story of the Bible can be seen in seed form here in the book of Jonah. And we've seen the nature of God and the nature of our message, this thing that we would call the gospel, that is literally good news of what God has done for us, is this humble pursuit. God relentlessly seeks us out. The book starts, God telling Jonah, hey, I, I want these people in Nineveh to know that which is right and that which is wrong. Go and tell them. He's pursuing the Ninevites, the Assyrians. The, remember, this is the great, 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 great grandfathers of ISIS. Right? Nineveh exists on what is now still kind of a stronghold in Mosul, Iraq of ISIS. So don't be too harsh on Jonah. If God said for you to go to, to the heart of the headquarters of ISIS and stand in there and say, stop with your violence. If, if you get excited about that, but then by all means, like pass judgment on Jonah. But if that scares you a little bit, you understand what made Jonah flee. But yet God in his heart had a, had a trajectory set out toward even these violent people. The, the, I would say the, the grandfathers of the modern violent empire, the Assyrians. And they were good at it. And yet God sends a messenger to demonstrate a word of grace to them. Well, that messenger runs the opposite direction. And then instead of smiting Jonah, destroying him, which probably would have been the short end of the story if I was writing it, he saves Jonah through miraculous means. Now, don't be freaked out about the fish. The fish is just a small character, and think of it as like a, like a Middle Eastern taxi in which God uses miraculous things to get a person from one place to the place they intended to be all along. And even though they were in the depths, it seemed like all hope was lost. On the third day, they were delivered safely, Jonah in this case, to where he belonged all along. <clears throat> Jesus, right? You get this? This is what we're meant to think about. And then Jonah speaks a word of judgment, a harsh word, that the people ought to turn from their wickedness. Something happens that shocks them, and it actually changes an entire city. But then we see in this last chapter something amazing. It's a powerful lesson for us, because even though he had an encounter with God's grace, while Jonah's transformation by God's grace propels him into mission, springboard, springboards him, it launches him, it like slingshots him into mission, that mission exposes his need for an ongoing transformation by grace. Such that God doesn't save people for their own good. He doesn't just save them on their own merits for their own benefit. He saves people for his purpose and glory in the world. And when he redeems and restores Jonah through miraculous means, he restores them to the mission. And the mission 
is a reminder of how great God's grace is and how much he continues to need it. But then you see something strange here. So two weeks ago we saw this, this rebuttal by Jonah. The first thing we saw in the first sentence, he became violently angry at the violence of the people. And we found that because he wasn't finding identity, his own sense of purpose and sense of worth and God's grace towards him, he was unable to extend grace to them. And in fact, he began to see the marks of their violence in himself. A warning for you and I, that if we're not finding our identity in the grace of God, we're probably, maybe, most likely, if not always, beginning to demonstrate the marks of the thing we hate the most. And the things about people that bother us the most, the people we wish God would punish the most, are probably doing the thing that, if we're not careful, is the most true about us. And the only antidote is to find a radical sense of identity in the grace of God. And last week we saw that, that he becomes angry at the forgiveness of God, the steadfast love, the patience, uh, the sense in which God is slow to anger. He's, he's quoting the, uh, the, the book of the, or what the Israelites would have said as they were delivered in the Exodus, right? And he uses it not as a, a means to glorify God, but he uses it as an insult, right? God, you, you gracious God, you, and and we see he becomes unforgiving. And when your identity isn't as a forgiven person, then you're completely unable to experience forgiveness around you. And in the same way that the things that you hate about other people probably point to something you hate about yourself, so also the people you don't want to forgive tend to expose and point towards something that you yourself don't experience forgiveness of. And so lastly we see here, we saw... An identity in grace that fuels mission, identity in forgiveness that fuels mission. But then this last thing we see here is just a sense in which an identity in comfort and not in humility and not in love for the city will rob us. I'll put it this way, and this will be the thing I hope we kind of land on in the book of Jonah. The love of comfort and the lack of love for people and our city kills mission. If you don't see yourself as being on a mission set aside by God, if you don't see that God has redeemed you and restored you, not because you're special, you don't merit this, as, as a, a motivation to be on a purpose in our city, in your family, in your workplace, then it's probably because you love comfort and you do not love people. That's Jonah. That's what we see here. So much so, and I don't know if you caught this, Jonah loved his comfort enough to want to die when he lost it. Now, I love what the Bible does here. The Bible, as only I think the Bible can do, exposes human beings for what they really are. The Bible is so unashamed of speaking what people really are like. Right? Even, like, again, I'm going to put this in heavy quotes here. The heroes of the Bible, <laughs> they're rough, right? They're, 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 and, and, only, and only the way that the Bible can comically demonstrate the nature of God can, it exposes what people are really like. And we see that here. This exchange where Jonah is mad for how forgiving God is, forgetting the fact that he'd been forgiven by God, and he's angry that God is not judging them, and then he's mad when the creature comforts that he had come to enjoy are taken from him. And we find that comfort, things... Lack of love for people. What I would say it this way is when we don't have the heart of God and see the world like God sees it, it kills mission. So much so that this guy would rather die, would rather die 
than to live without these comforts. But just let's walk through this together. Jonah goes outside of the city, says that he kind of he makes a little booth, a little tent, something just finds a little lean-to or something that gets him out of the sun. After all, this is Mosul, Iraq, modern day, right? So uh, the average temperature um, in, in maybe in, in the hottest seasons, about, about 114 degrees, um, well above 100, maybe even higher. Um, so like the average high is about 115, 114, 115 degrees. So a little sympathy. He goes out and he's like, he's not going to sit out um, uh, without some sort of shelter. He kind of sits in the shade. And then, and then it says three different times this phrase. I don't know if you caught that. God appointed. Did you catch that? Now, this is a theologically rich statement. Again, remember what I told you. The book of Jonah has just about everything. If you want to understand the way the world is, the way the Bible explains it, if you want to understand everything you need to know about God, the nature of his character, and the nature of people, Jonah tells it. And in fact, it tells us in ways without using explicit words. It teaches us everything we need to know about sin, even though it never uses the word sin. It teaches everything we need to know about conversion, repentance, but it never uses those words. And it illustrates for us in a, in a pretty powerful and, and almost comical way what this looks like. Three different times God appoints. First, he appoints a plant. He appoints a comfort, something that Jonah would like in the heat, sets it aside, says, here, enjoy this. But when the comfort, did you catch that, was taken from, this is God appointed a worm. Now, again, this is where there there are kinds of plants that could spring up overnight do this, but I, I don't even want to mess with that. I don't want to rationalize this. After all, we have already seen a few amazing miracles in this book. I don't want to pretend that this isn't just one more. So God, in some miraculous measure, allows shade to come over Jonah, but then by miraculous measure, he appoints a worm. Again, I said this when we talked about the fish. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you can get your puppy to stay and you think that's cool. Uh, when God tells animals what to do, they swallow people and don't kill them, and then apparently he has power over worms. So so at the very least, the, the book of Jonah is an invitation into worship, isn't it? It's an invitation into awe. And if you're like, oh, I don't know if I believe in God, well, I, I'm really glad you're here. I'm, if maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm so glad you're here because I want you to, I want you to hear the extreme nature of what it is that we believe on its merit. I don't want to soft sell it to you. We believe in a God that's worthy of worship. A God that does amazing and miraculous things. And so the worst thing that I can do is to try to convince you to believe in a little God that does little things. I want you to see, this, <laughs> this God commands worms, okay? This God has sovereignty over everything. He commands plants, commands large fish, and he even turns the heart of an entire city. This is the God that we worship. This is an invitation to consider the possibility that God is bigger, greater, Ephesians tells us, might possibly be, be beyond that which we could even ask or imagine. That's the God that deserves our glory. That's what I want to invite you to consider. God's working miracles here. He's sovereign over these things. Worm comes, kills the plant, and then, get this, he's mad. And then God's like, as if that weren't enough, he appoints a scorching east wind. That east wind comes through and is miserable. The sun beats down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And in his misery, look what he says. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. I want you to see the nature of God's vector towards the city here. I want, I want you to see what it is that, that, we, that we kind of have as a lesson, a model for us. Jonah teaches us about ourselves. Remember I told you this, every single year, Orthodox Jews read the entirety of the book of Jonah all 48 verses on Yom Kippur, and they declare corporately, we are Jonah. They say, we are Jonah. Like, woe to us. We 
And, and again, think about who's the hero and who's the and who's the, the villain here? The religious guy. The highly religious people are the ones that are the villains here. And we declare we are Jonah. And so this is a lesson for us to think about. Are, are there ways in which God is doing something that we're currently ignoring? And I would push on you, this is, this is pretty painful, but if you think this doesn't apply to you, like if you find yourself thinking like, oh, I get it, I understand. You're Jonah. That's exactly what this story is about. It's about a person who comically doesn't get it. Who clearly doesn't understand. And yet he is God's man. He's appointed by God to speak God's message. And here he is just, just completely like blundering at every step. And God just shows patience every step of the way. So this is where I would push on. If you like, oh, I understand this. My perspective on the Bible is right. I interpret this correctly. Time out. I'm not saying a fish is going to get you. But a fish might get you. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. If it's like, just be careful. God, you're in the place of Jonah, and arrogantly you're saying, like, I, I get this. I understand this. And the Bible loves to tell stories in which the foil for God's character and mercy is a religious person who thinks he gets it. And Jesus was hung on a cross by a bunch of people who didn't realize they were Jonah. They thought they got it, thought they understood it, and missed God in the flesh. But Jonah loves his comfort. And so I would say, if there's ever a, if there's ever a warning for us, then this might be it. Now let me just kind of unpack where, what God's doing here in the city. I'm going to give you some maybe some strategic and practical ways in which God is sending Jonah to the city, and then some more, I don't know, we'll call them subjective Subjective and compassionate reasons. The first one is objective and, and strategic. God sends Jonah to the city. He sends Jonah to the city for a powerful purpose because that is where the center of the culture lies. Now, again, no offense. If you're, you know, I, I was born in the city, but then I graduated with 18 people in the country. Okay, so if you're a country person here, I love you. I mean, I love you, all right? Rednecks live everywhere. Stay, stay strong, Okay. <laughs> But you have to admit, if you're from the country, that the, the cultural center, the thing that tends to affect how you dress, how you live, what you think, tends to find itself in more metropolitan areas. The city has power. And there's this, this amazing thing that God is doing. God sends Jonah to the center of culture. Right? Because if you want to, you know, if, if you want to, I don't know, reach some artists, by all means, you, God sends you to the country. But if you want to reach the culture of art, you want to affect the nature of art, you, you go to the city. Right? So if you want to, you know, if you want to like make an impact in any sector of the economy, you can do so anywhere. But if you want to really change the culture, you go to the city. Now, this isn't to say that God just only loves the biggest possible cities, but there's a strategic thing going on here. And you and I know this if you were walking through the book of Acts with us a couple years ago. Is that God in 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 his profound strategic sense of changing the world sends the apostles, scatters them where? To some of the most important cultural centers. And that's why there's some really unique things going on in the books that we read. Remember Corinth? Corinth is like the modern day Vegas. It'd be like, what happens in Corinth stays in, in Corinth. And, and so there's a letter to the Corinthians and saying like, hey, again, think about Vegas. Think about walking down the strip. Right? I'm like, I'm, I don't mean to like invite you to sin here, but like you're walking down the strip, the strip, and if you were like, hey, what does a Christian look like on the strip in Vegas? 
Well, if you want to stand out for the purpose of the glory of Christ, you probably would dress a little different. You would act a little different, right? You would interact with people a little different. You're, if you wanted to stand out for the glory of Christ, let's say, in a cultural center like Las Vegas, you'd probably have a different set of sexual ethics, let's say, than let's, what, well, what's on most of the billboards. Get it? This is what God does. He sends people to the city. Just think about it. Like, is it a coincidence that the most comprehensive theological treatise, I'm talking about theological manifesto, the book of Romans, was a letter written to the most important cultural center at that time. Is it a coincidence? Or is it possible that if you wanted to change the theology of the world, you go to the center of the universe right there, the city of Rome, impact the culture. Get it? This is what God does. This is the strategic thing that God does. Again, it's not to, to insult people who don't live in cities. It's not. We see this, remember, the book of Genesis gives us an example of, of Abram and, and Lot. Lot went to the city, kind of corrupt, and, and then Abram, what, stayed as kind of a wanderer outside the city. It's not that God hasn't enabled us to, to, to be there, but it, it just seems pretty clear. If you're going to change the culture and change the trajectory of history, you do, throw from the, you do so from the center of the city, and that is what God does with Jonah, sends him to the center of the city. So... What I glean from that, what I glean, I add that to the book of Acts, so should we. Let me put it this way. If there's a tendency in you to detach yourself from people rather than to feel a magnetism towards people, be careful. City or country, if you find yourself being where you are for the purpose of detaching yourself from people, Beware, you love yourself so much so that you want to keep people away. And that's not a city thing or a country thing. But if you want to live in the country, I hear this all the time, because you want to get away from people, just slow down, slow down. That's what Jonah did. Did you catch that? He's like, I'm going to go, go outside the city. I'm going to sit back and, whoa, oh, it's a mess in there. I'm going to get out of there. Don't let them stain me. I'm going to get out and watch them fall apart. Just be careful. Now that's true of city dwellers too. If your dream is to make so much money in the city such that you can build a house and live in a gated community where no one's allowed in, same thing. God has a strategic and purposeful mission for people. And if you find yourself not liking people, friend, you, you don't have the heart of God. That's the strategic, and I would say objective kind of trajectory of what God does. He does it here in the city. He does it later in the book of Acts. This is what God does. But secondly, there's kind of like a subjective and compassionate reason, and that is that God loves people. Notice the separation here. Jonah loved his comfort. Jonah loved his things, and God loved people. What do you mourn over the most? Do you weep and mourn over broken people? Or do you mourn and weep over broken things? What's the temper tantrum you throw when somebody back, you know, backs into your car? Or when you see someone you love slip into sin? Because the heart of God is for people. While the, the need for God's grace in Jonah here is evident in his love for things. God loves people. He values people. And again, that doesn't mean that like cities are more valuable than 
the country, but it does mean that God has a trajectory for people. That's what God does. And this will blow your mind. This will change the way you see the world. I'm going to give you an example. I want, you to, I want this to like burn a hole in your memory, okay? This is a Sioux Falls area metro bus. What do you see when you see that? In fact, for the rest of your life, I, I want to impact what you see when you see a bus. You just see something maybe you need to get over in the left lane, right, to get around so it doesn't slow you down to get to where you want to go. God sees his most beautiful creation. He sees a bus full of people who bear his image. They bear his, they bear, when you look closely at them, you can see the nature and character of a gracious and loving God. If nothing else, I hope to like transport. Every time you see a bus, every single time you see a bus, if you, see, if you go somewhere and you see a subway, or you see just a crowd of people, or even worse, maybe if you're in, in a crowd of people and you start to feel freaked out, I just want you to begin to, to realize God doesn't see those people the way you do. And it's on us to begin to confess, God, I don't have your heart. Because when I see a bus, I don't see like, oh, look, the crowning achievement of creation, right? The thing that God saved for last. He created all the world as a stage. And in the center of the stage, he put these people, his image bearers. I don't see a bus and go, glory to God for the beauty of his creation. I don't see that. But what if that's what God sees? What if when you see the skyline of a city, instead of buildings and architecture, you see what, what an amazing display of the image bearers of God. Because there's something amazing here that Jonah, in fact, loved his comfort enough to want to die when he lost it. And he loved his comfort and he loved things so much that he missed out on the people that God had sent him to reach, the people that God had set him aside to specifically speak to. He cares for them in a profound way. He also even cares for their culture. So where did I get that? He cares for their economy, right? Where, where, do, where do I find that? Well, I don't know if you caught the very end. Did you catch the last phrase? It's kind of weird. Um, and also much cattle. Right? That seems strange. It seems. And, and again, there's a minority of, of commentarians that think this is like Jesus is, or excuse me, God is like, you know, loves animals, and, you know, this is, this is if, again, I think we said this last time in Ecclesiastes, it says, like, a wise man goes to the right, and a fool goes to the left, and I don't know why Republicans haven't made that into a t-shirt. This would be, <laughs> but this is like, well, this is, this isn't this perfect, this is perfect content for a PETA t-shirt, right? Like, if you're Humane Society, ASPCA, like, God loves cattle, right? You know, if you're a vegan, this, you just got excited, you're like, that's exactly right. But I, I don't, maybe, maybe that's a little bit of it. Certainly God loves his creation, right? The creation of God declares his handiwork. So this, that's not wrong. There's a, apparently something about the beauty of God seen in a cow. Now, we disagree on why that's beautiful, maybe. But nevertheless, beautiful, okay? But I want you to see a little deeper. So, so I, I think of it this way. How do you carry around your wealth? How do you store your wealth? What do you do with your treasured possessions? How do you manage it, right? And so for most of us, our wealth is in a, you know, a little card with a, with a magnetic strip or a little, you know, security encoded chip, right? That's where our wealth is. 
okay? Well, for the Ninevites, that wasn't quite accessible, right? And this is a highly populated city. Maybe your wealth is in real estate. Maybe it's in a home. Maybe it's a mortgage. You're like, you're, you're, you're storing up wealth in that. That's, and that's, that for you has great economic momentum, such that if someone steals your credit card, you like give it back, right? Or if someone like hurts your house, you insure your house, right? And that's where we tend to store wealth. Well, I want you to, to see this. The way that you stored wealth in this particular time uh, wasn't that much different. It's just that it had four legs and at a certain time, it either provided you with food uh, on a regular basis through milk or it provided you with you food on a regular basis when you ended its life. And so I want you to see, he's, God, God, when he says, look, should I not have pity? You, you have pity. Notice the words. He says, you have pity for your stuff. You have pity for your comfort. Like you really loved that shade that came from the plant. It made you feel good. And he gives an analogy. You love the stuff. You love the comfort. I love life. I love the beautiful city where there's people, 120,000 people at least. And there's even their economy, their wealth stored up in cattle. And so God is, this is a powerful, I mean, do you hear hear the compassion of God in this? Like, I love these people. Should I not love them and their well-being? Should I not love them and the way that they survive? God, maybe, yeah, okay, God loves animals, sure. But God loves people so much that whether you agree with me or disagree on what you should do, with a cow, we both agree, I hope, I want to convince you that God has put that cow here for our enjoyment, for his glory. Same thing here. He's saying, look, God loves his people and he loves these people and the way they live. He's providing for them. Our money is in other things. For them, it was in cattle. But on the most personal level, I hope this begins to show that God actually wants these people to survive and thrive in the city. Now, some of you know this maybe even better than me, but a few centuries later, they forgot. A few centuries later, the Babylonians came in and took over, and they deported the Israelites. And they took all the smart people, right, all the skilled people, the trade workers, all the educated people, took them away, it was like a double whammy because you, you, know, you were either deported because you were smart and useful or you were the other people that were like, I'm not smart and useful, right? So like, it just, this is what the Babylonians did well. They destroyed a culture and implanted their own. And so the Israelites wanted to resist that. So they're like, okay, so we're, we're now in the Babylonian empire, but let's just stay out of Babylon. Well, you know what happens through Jeremiah chapter 28 through chapter 30. We saw this. We think this is a, a powerful vision for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, remember? I have plans to prosper you, one of the most misquoted and and taken out of context verses. What is the context of that verse? The context of that verse is a group of people who wanted to detach themselves from their enemy. They wanted to detach themselves from Babylon. And what did God command them to do? No, get in the city. Get there. Have children there. Give your daughters away in marriage. Give your sons to be married and, and don't simply hide from the people, but be fruitful and multiply there. And I have plans for you. What are those plans? Just for your own good? No, I have plans to prosper you while you thrive in the city. Why? Because you love stuff and God loves people. You love comfort. So did Jonah. So did the Israelites in Babylon. But God, over and over again, loves people. 
And he'll push you out of your comfort zone. (laughs) This is the scary part. He may send you a creature comfort. I don't know if you caught that. God appointed all three. He may send you a creature comfort just to prove a point to you by removing it. Sent sent a, a plant. Oh, what a nice plant. And then he's like, you like that? How about this? Shouldn't that, doesn't that at least begin to, on a theological level, an existential level, begin to reorient your understanding of discomfort and suffering? Shouldn't that begin to, shouldn't you at least stop and think, is it possible that this suffering might be used by God for a greater purpose? This is what we do. We have a, we have a trajectory for the people. We have a trajectory for the city. Why? Because that is the heart of God. And if you love your stuff more than people, you're missing out on what God is doing. If you're more worried about fighting for comfort than fighting for what God has to say to the people around you, then you're missing the boat. You're Jonah. Jonah has no compassion, he has no mission, and then he has no confession. But something amazing happens here, and I kind of want to land on this as we, we think through this. What happens at the end of this? Why is this important? The answer, Matthew chapter 12. I want to read it to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 says this, and bringing in verse 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees, again, religious people, who Jesus was fairly ruthless to because they thought they had it figured out. Okay? Some of the scribes, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, right? Dance, monkey. You know, do, do the thing that we like for you to do. Benefit us. Did you? Don't miss it. They wanted something that would give them creature comfort, right? They wanted something they would enjoy. And they demanded it of Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want God with us. They wanted Jesus to just benefit them. Don't miss that. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. That's a polite way of speaking to people, isn't it? Like, so again, like if you think if you think you got this figured out, Jesus goes, evil and adulterous generation. You want a sign, but it says no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah, don't miss that. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, that is the Ninevites we read about, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, and this is for you who are with us in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, just in case you might have spent some time thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom of Solomon. He adds to this story about Jonah. The queen of the south will rise up. That's the queen of Sheba, someone that Solomon passed along wisdom to. She will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Did you get this? Jonah says, or or excuse me, Jonah is pointing to something. Now, stop here. A lot of people ask, do you really believe that a fish swallowed a man and spat him out? And I mean, the, the only answer I really have, even though I find that difficult to believe, is just, well, Jesus did. And I mean, if you want to be the guy that thinks Jesus is an idiot, good luck. I mean, that's cool. You know, stop. Please don't. Uh, there's, a, there's a few books about what happens to those people. But I, I don't really want to join them. 
And so like, I don't be that, but here's what he says. Like Jesus says, look, if, when you think about Jonah, you're beginning to understand what God is doing through me. And he says quite clearly for us to hear, Jesus is the better Jonah. He is the better Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep a straight face, but I don't have that ability. <laughs> Jesus is the better Jonah. Jesus fulfills what Jonah begins to give us a hungry for. In fact, what I would argue is Jesus not only is the better Jonah, but Jonah is ultimately about Jesus. Don't think you've wasted the last 48 verses that we've read. They're meant to whet your appetite for Jesus. They're meant to whet your appetite for what God has done for us. And even though these people wanted creature comfort, Jesus says, no, I'm going to give you me. That's why we sing that song, right? Come thou fount of every blessing. A superficial person wants just blessings. But those of us who have been changed by God, we don't want the blessings. We want the fountain. I want the source. And Jonah whets our appetite for the source of God's grace. Jonah does something amazing for us. So here's a few things we'll just land on in this. Um, Jonah teaches us how God's grace transforms us for mission and how the mission renews our need for more transforming grace. And God does something really amazing through a complete buffoon, right? Just a story that allows us to go, what an idiot, right? This, this is it. And it's profound, but it also ought to encourage you because if you can't relate to Jonah, I want to help you. You're probably just as deceived as he was. I learned this a little while ago. A few weeks ago, I was building uh, a project. I was doing something. I'm not going to tell you what it was because I don't want you to laugh at my silly hobbies. But I was building something. I aspire to be a craftsman, a renaissance man, if you will, and be a, you know, kind of a carpenter. And I was building something, and I needed, I, 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 I was missing a piece. And, and I, I needed just the right thing. I didn't, I didn't need a big piece. I needed just the right kind of, shape of a piece to finish the project I was working on. It couldn't be straight because it wouldn't fit in to repair the thing I was repairing. Had to be a little bit crooked and misshapen. And so I went over to, uh, again, as good craftsmen have taught me to do from previous projects, I went over and there was a little scrap pile. And, and it was weird. I wasn't looking for a brand new piece of wood. I would have gone to the store if I had wanted that. I was looking for a piece of wood that had just the right amount of being screwed up. I was like looking for just the right messed up piece. I dug through the scrap pile and I found it. And it was a strange joy that overwhelmed me with this old piece of junk that was from a failed project before. And I, and I took it and I finished the project and it was perfect. Don't miss that. Good craftsmen, good creators. I aspire to be one. But good creators often can use the just... <laughs> The perfect amount of screwed up to make something beautiful. And I love this. Jonah teaches us a lesson, doesn't he? Boy, Jonah was messed up in a unique way, wasn't he? And he's just like, it's obvious. You're like, whoa, what a, what a weirdo. How do you, how'd you miss that? You're going you're gonna to lecture God? And I want you to be encouraged and humbled by this. <laughs> God is good at this. God loves taking just the right amount of screwed up. He likes taking people like you and like me that are messed up just enough to be perfect for his mission. <laughs> just enough. Because after all, if they were perfect, then they would get the glory. 
If they were perfect, then people would praise the thing, the person. But when they're not, strange thing happens. God gets the glory. Because you're left with this strange question. What happened to Jonah? Like, is, is Jonah burning in hell somewhere? Like, is Jonah under the wrath of God? I don't think so. And let me show you why. His repentance, although it's not explicit in this text, is visible in the evidence of the text. Think about it. This is a strange prophetic book, right? There's not a lot of prophecy, and there's not a lot of narrative about the life of Jonah. But there's a couple things in here that, like other books of the Bible that are we call major or minor prophets, this is a minor prophet, they had these little insights. But if you look at the little, the little relationship uh, between God and Jonah seen in chapter 2, did you catch that? It was a prayer. I mean, it didn't say so. Did you think there was an eyewitness swallowed alongside Jonah who was like, mm, really, this is what he was, I mean, no. But then there was like this interaction. But it says he went out alone and made a booth for himself outside of the city. Was there just someone who was creeping along and writing down his thoughts and as he was interacting with God? No. Jonah, and either writing it himself or dictating it to someone else, allows us to see this inner tor- turmoil. Jonah, and the evidence, I think, of his repentance is the fact that he tells this story in which he is not the hero. Jonah repents by telling a story about himself in which he is not the hero, but the grace of God is. What about you? Do you like stories that have a happy ending because you're the hero in the story? Because we see something amazing here. He's willing to teach us by allowing us to see his flaws and failures. You see, a person whose identity is in the grace of God is quick to confess sin against God. A person whose identity is in themselves will do everything they can to justify their own sin because ultimately they want the glory that God deserves. And when Jesus says it's finished, it's paid in full, that justification, that self-righteousness, that pharisaical disposition is saying to Jesus, I got this, I don't need your help. But friend, don't miss this. The grace of God is made manifest when we're willing to tell a story in which we are the fool, in which we are not the idiot. Excuse me, in which we are the idiot, in which we are not the hero, because we love to tell stories where Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the better Jonah. And the evidence of this intimate story of Jonah is evidence, I think, of Jonah who repented and in a profound and humble way. Wouldn't you agree? A man who was willing to let the whole world, right? So, so that thousands of years later, you and I would gather and go, what an idiot. And he goes, yes, that's exactly what I, that was, that was the intention of the book. Because then what do we get to marvel at? What kind of a gracious and merciful God could use someone this messed up? How glorious and how infinitely majestic must be God in his work and his mission in the world to use people so comically messed up like Jonah. Friend, so also is the grace of God that we celebrate in our own lives. We look to Jesus, the better Jonah, and we hunger and we thirst for the kind of satisfaction that comes from laying down our own pride and self-righteousness and receiving an unmerited, 
an unearned and unobligated favor. Friend, don't miss this. We are Jonah, but that isn't something we're supposed to lament about. Friend, we're Jonah. We're the foolish and sinful people that God, in his mercy, looked down upon and says, that's the one. I want that one. Jonah came with a word of God. Jesus came as the word of God. Jonah ran from the Lord's presence, but Jesus ran toward us to demonstrate for us the Lord's presence. Jonah was a sinner running from God, and Jesus is God running after sinners. Jonah came as a Hebrew sinner. Jesus came as a Hebrew savior. Jonah slept in a stormy boat because he was scared and overwhelmed, and Jesus slept in a stormy boat because he was completely at peace. The pagans on the boat, they sought to save Jonah's life, but Jesus seeks to save the pagans' lives. Jonah could not command the storm to calm, but Jesus commands the storm to calm. Jonah was thrown into the sea to appease the wrath of God on himself for what he had done. And Jesus was thrown into the ground to appease the wrath of God for what others had done. Because of Jonah, one nation was called to repent and turn to God. And because of Jesus, every nation is now called to God. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, but Jesus was in the grave and on the third day walked out victorious. Jonah was thrown into the, into the, the storm of God's wrath for one time, and Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath once and for all, for all time. Jonah needed a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Jonah cared for his own nation. Jesus cares for every nation. Jonah went into the fist. Jesus went into the grave. Jonah ran to Nineveh unwillingly. Jesus runs to earth willingly. Jonah was compelled by anger, and Jesus was compelled by God's persistent, unrelenting grace. Jonah refused to dwell with the Ninevites, and Jesus chooses regularly to dwell with sinners. Jonah waited for the enemies to be punished. Jesus took the place of the enemies and bore their punishment. Jonah sat on a high place, hoping that everyone would be destroyed. Friend, Jesus sits on a great high throne, patiently inviting all to be forgiven, to receive that grace. And now, friends, Jonah went into the city with a message of judgment, and you and I have been sent into our city with a message message of God's saving grace. Friend, this is good news. Jonah has started something that Jesus has finished. Jonah has begun something that now Jesus has passed on to you and to me. Let's thank God for that. God, you are so merciful to use people like us. We thank you that the story of Jonah is left for us to consider the possibility that you use broken vessels, sinful and rebellious vessels for your glory. Uh, God, I just sense if there's, if there's someone in this room that senses that like what they've done has somehow disqualified them from your mercy and grace, that if there's someone in this room that's thinking God can't forgive me, God can't use me, God can't restore me, uh, would the story of Jonah just be an affront? Would it be a confrontational question? Does God love you? If God has pity for the cows, I mean, do, doesn't he love you? Doesn't, doesn't he have pity for you? Would you begin to stir in us a sense of curiosity 
is it possible? Is it possible that God loves me? Is it possible that God can restore me like he restored Jonah? Is it possible that God could make a beautiful story for his glory out of me? May the words of Jonah be a resounding yes. Yes. As we begin to think about the ways in which our heart is separated from yours, uh, would you begin to reveal to us and remind us there is nothing that could be exposed about us uh, that is not already paid for by the blood of Jesus. I thank you for Jonah's willingness to tell a story in which he is a fool so that we could see clearly the grace of God for an undeserving person. And as a response, may we rejoice in your grace demonstrated for us. If there's any doubt that you aren't a merciful God, maybe if there's some, don't think that you're good or don't think you're forgiving, may the story of Jonah be a, a confrontational witness. God is good. He is slow to anger and rich in mercy. May that propel us into our city with the same heart for people that their creator has for them. In Jesus' name, amen.